Hey, so we're in a series called Getting Ripe with God, which is all about the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is a list of qualities or attributes that, according to the Apostle Paul, grow in the heart and life of every person who is controlled by or influenced by the, the Holy Spirit. Uh, let's just take a moment to rehearse them. This is taken from a section of Paul's letter to the Christians living in the province of Galatia in the first century. It's from Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and 23. But as we go through this list this morning, let's go through it slowly and, and, and just think about each one of these fruits and maybe even ask ourselves, is this a fruit that is growing in abundance in, in my personal life, your personal life right now. Let's just say them out loud as they appear on the screen. I will give each fruit about five seconds so that we can really reflect on each one. Just say them out loud as they appear on the screen. You ready? Love. Joy. How are you doing at joy? Yeah. Patience. Kindness. Goodness. Faithfulness. Self-control. Okay, so I don't know if this happened to you, uh, but, what, but what happened when you got to the word patience? <laughs> I mean, I've been making the case each week that this is going to be a delicious series, right? It's a series about fruit, and who doesn't like fruit? Fruit is sweet, it is tasty. So I've been saying that this series is going to tickle your spiritual taste buds. This series is going to delight you. Uh, uh, all these virtues or qualities are very desirable, right? They all taste good. And, and you kind of felt that as you reflected on each one, didn't you? Love, you know, I, I want love to be a huge part of my life, of, of who I am. We all want to be loved. And, and we all want to, we, we all have an innate need to, to love other people, though we're often maybe a little confused about what that looks like, but, but, but we all, you know, I mean, we all get our Bic lighters out and, and heartily sing along whenever that song comes on the radio, you know, what the world needs now is love, sweet love, right? I mean, yeah, that, that song hasn't been on the radio in decades, you know, uh, or how about, you know, people all over the world, join hands, for my love. Yeah, also not been on the radio for a long time. Uh, but, but if it was, if it did come on the radio, we'd, we'd all get on board, right? You know, join the love train because we all want love and we all need love. We all want to be loved and we all want to love others. The same for joy, right? Joy to the world. 
all the boys and girls now. Come on, sing with me. Joy to the fishes in the deep blue sea. Also a song from the 60s. I, I don't know why just songs from the 60s are uh, coming into mind right now. But, but joy is, is, is something that uh, the world longs for. And we can all, you know, sing along. Peace. <laughs> Let there be peace on earth. Another song from the 60s. Um, but everybody longs for, desires, and hungers for peace. But then when we get to patience, it's, it's kind of like, you know, it's kind of like uh, love, yum. Joy, delicious. Peace, scrumptious. Patience, uh, not many songs about patience out there, are there? <laughs> Uh, patience seems to maybe be the lemon of the fruit of the Spirit. It, it's maybe a little sour. It's a little hard on the palate, isn't it? At least that's how it seems at first glance. Nobody really wants to have to have patience. Nobody really wants to have to be patient. We, we all want people to be patient with us when we're on the receiving end of patience. Well, well then it's good. But, but being patient ourselves, not so much at least at first, because when you stop to think about it, without patience, there's a lot of other stuff you'd really never be able to enjoy. I mean, what's the saying? Whatever is worth having is worth waiting for, right? Uh, most of the best things in life are not instant uh, or automatic. You have to work for them. You've got to wait for them. You've got to save up for them, and all that requires patience, but patience typically carries with it great rewards, and typically the reward is, is way more than worth the patience that was required along the way. So, so maybe rather than being like a lemon, patience may in fact be a delicious, scrumptious fruit, but one that is particularly sour if you try to bite into it before it's fully ripe. What exactly is patience? According to dictionary.com, patience is defined as bearing provocation, annoyance, misfortune, delay, hardship, pain, etc., with fortitude and calm and without complaint, anger, or the like. That's according to dictionary.com. Patience is enduring pain or suffering or annoyance without getting angry, without resorting to complaining, but enduring it with courage, calmness, and if you're a student of Jesus and the early disciples, even enduring it with joy and a sense of peace. The original Greek word that Paul used that's written in the New Testament is macromethia. Macro meaning long and themia, which literally means temperament. It's often translated long-suffering in many English Bibles, and, and it means just what you'd think it means. It means the ability to suffer long. This, ladies and gentlemen, this is a fruit of the Spirit. It is one of the qualities or character traits that is produced in your life when you are yielding to the Holy Spirit, the ability to suffer for a long time without complaining or getting annoyed or angry, which then makes it 
somewhat understandable why patience may seem to be a less delicious fruit of the Spirit. It, it involves long-suffering. But we so easily forget or lose sight of what patience produces, which is why the New Testament writers wrote so much reminding us that our patience has great reward if we will not lose heart and give up. See, one of the most wonderful, powerful, genuinely glorious aspects of the Christian faith is this idea that your suffering actually produces something good. There are promises attached to your suffering. See, a lot of people, they refuse to believe in God because they say they can't believe in a God that would allow such terrible suffering in the world. Have you heard that before? Uh, an all-powerful God who is also supposedly all-loving would never allow such horrible suffering, they say. And they make the argument, if you were all-powerful and, and also all-loving, would you let people that you love suffer if it was in your power to stop it? And of course, most people would say, absolutely not. I would not allow people to suffer if it were in my power to stop it. And they say, well, you claim that God is all-powerful and that he's all-loving, which seems to be a bit of a, you know, have, present a bit of a dilemma. If you were and all powerful, if you were all powerful and all loving, and you wouldn't allow people you love to suffer, are you then more loving than God? Or more powerful than God? Or maybe more moral? See, here's what's not being considered in that argument. There's actually quite a few things that aren't being considered there, but, but for starters, it leaves out the fact that our suffering is largely something we've brought on ourselves, right? I mean, we all kind of understand that through our sin and disobedience. We created a world where there is potential for great suffering. God created paradise, and in paradise, there was no suffering. Suffering was not part of his original plan and intention for human beings. It was human sin that introduced suffering and death. But here's what we so quickly forget or so easily dismiss, and this is truly profound. God may not completely spare us from suffering in this life, but he did choose to fully enter into it himself, to, to willings, willingly subject himself to our suffering. He, he, be, he himself became a human being and he chose to wade through the deepest, darkest experiences of our suffering. Gross injustice, rejection, loss, abuse, ridicule, physical torture and torment, and even death. Such is the love that he has for us human beings. He enters into our pain, our anguish, and our suffering. But that doesn't really answer the question, why doesn't he spare us suffering and pain if it's in his power to do so and if he loves us? Well, here's the thing. I believe he does. Probably far more uh, often and far more powerfully than any of us realize. He is always at work to heal, to mend, to soothe, to comfort, to restore, and yes, even to protect us from our own foolishness and rebellion. Case in point, the skunk episode I shared with you last week, <laughs> that could have gone so very bad. 
I think God had some angels looking out for us that day. But the reason he doesn't spare us from all of our suffering is because God uses our suffering for our own good. God can use suffering to bring about his redemptive purposes in our lives. Again, look at Jesus. His suffering that he willingly took upon himself, he willingly embraced suffering, and it resulted in the redemption of mankind. So too, our suffering is actually part of our healing, part of our restoration, part of our sanctification, to use a churchy word. As I mentioned last week, doctors and dentists may hurt you in the process of healing you. They don't harm you, but they may hurt you. There may be pain involved. The healing process often involves some degree of suffering. So our suffering accomplishes something good for us and in us. And even though we can't always see it and don't fully understand it in the moment, the list of ways that it does this is very, very long. One obvious way is that we learn from the things we suffer, right? We learn to not put our hand on hot stoves, not put pointy metal things into electrical outlets as we grow up. Um, and, and, and as we get older, we learn not to be careless riding a bike. We learn not to talk back to certain people, not to be disrespectful to those in authority, not to drink too much of certain things, not to eat certain things, not to do certain things, not to inject certain things into our bodies. We learn through suffering. And, and God teaches us through suffering. Here's a quote from the letter uh, to the Hebrews. Uh, God said, my child, don't make light of the Lord's discipline and don't give up when he corrects you. Don't give up. For the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes everyone he accepts as his child. As you endure this divine discipline, remember that God is treating you as his own children. So God disciplines us teaches us, forms us, shapes our character through the things we suffer, especially when we suffer patiently and embrace our suffering without complaining or rebelling, but suffer with confidence, courage, and yes, even joy. James, the half-brother of Jesus, he writes this, my brothers and sisters, when you have many kinds of troubles, you should be full of joy. Because you know that these troubles test your faith, and this will give you what? Give you patience, yes. Let your patience show itself perfectly in what you do. Then you will be perfect and complete and will have everything you need. The Apostle Paul, he says, we also have joy in our troubles. Joy in our troubles. Because we know that these troubles produce patience. And patience produces character, and character produces hope, and hope won't disappoint us because God has poured out his love to fill our hearts. He gave his love through the Holy Spirit whom God has given to us. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Problem of Pain, he wrote this. He says, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts to us in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Listen, C.S. Lewis suffered in ways that, that 
not many of us suffer. Few can relate to. He, he lost his mother at an early age. He saw his dad emotionally abandon him. He suffered from a respiratory illness as a teenager. He fought and was wounded in World War I. He had to bury his wife after only being married for four years. I mean, he suffered a lot. And this is what he writes to us. You know, as Jesus followers, we, we have the wonderful assurance that our pain is not meaningless. It is producing something good for us, something glorious and eternal. And perhaps Paul says it best when he writes this in his letter to the Christians living in Corinth. He says, for this reason, we never become discouraged. Don't let yourself become discouraged. Even though our physical being is gradually decaying, there's no denying that. We all feel it. I'm feeling it more and more. Uh, even though our physical being is gradually decaying, yet our spiritual being is renewed day by day. And this small and temporary trouble that we suffer will bring us a tremendous and eternal glory much greater than the trouble. I love how Paul refers to his own suffering as small and temporary. <laughs> Few people in history have suffered as much as Paul has suffered through persecutions, I mean, severe persecutions, illnesses, poverty, hunger and thirst, injustices, calamities such as being shipwrecked twice, and ultimately martyrdom. And yet, he is constantly writing to folks like you and me and telling us that we should be full of joy and let God fill us with his incomprehensible peace and never to be discouraged or lose hope in times of suffering in times of suffering. Listen, if Paul refers to his own suffering as small, then probably my, yours and mine are really small. But he says to remember that our suffering is producing something for us. It's, it, none of it is wasted. All of it will be rewarded if we don't lose heart and give up. Well, how are we supposed to pull that off? I mean, how did the Apostle Paul pull that off with everything he suffered? Well, going on, he explains how. He says, For we fix our attention not on things that are seen, but on things that are unseen. What can be seen lasts only for a time, but what cannot be seen lasts forever. Focus your attention, Paul says. Focus your attention on what you can see with your spiritual eyes and not what, you can, what can only be seen with your physical eyes. In other words, you need to develop spiritual eyesight. Well, how's that supposed to happen? I mean, how does somebody fix their attention on something they can't see? If you missed any part of this series, uh, you can go back and watch or listen to previous messages by going to hopebusbe.com slash messages. I mentioned this because because the answer to that question, how do I develop spiritual eyesight, is really covered in those previous messages. Let, let's just quickly review. What are two prerequisites for growing the fruit of the Spirit? What are two prerequisites? One is humility. Yes, humility is recognizing that you are spiritually blind. It's acknowledging that you are spiritually blind. Before you can be healed of your blindness, you've got to come to terms with the reality that you are actually spiritually blind. Jesus told the Pharisees, and I won't put it on the screen because I'm paraphrasing it. He says, you know, Pharisees, you know, if you would just admit that you're blind, then there would be hope for you. But because you insist that you can see, well, you're doomed to remain blind. 
First step is you got to admit, yeah, I, I, I don't see as I should. Humility is coming to terms with your spiritual blindness. Here's, here's what we said in week one of this series. Humility is the soil in which the fruit of the Spirit grows. Humility is the prerequisite for pretty much any spiritual growth or development. It was our lack of humility. It was our pride, our trust and confidence in our own competence and intellect and moral discernment that created the mess in the first place, way back in the beginning. Humility is the first prerequisite for growing the fruit of the Spirit. What's the second one? Is what? Gratitude, yeah. Humility is the soil in which the fruit of the Spirit grows, and gratitude is the sky that, that provides the sunshine and the rain without, without which nothing can grow. Gratitude is the sunshine and the rain. Humility and gratitude are the starting points for developing spiritual eyesight. Humility and gratitude open you up to new ways of seeing. You can begin to see from an eternal perspective as the fruit of the Spirit begins to grow in your life. And you begin to see how small and temporary your present problems really are in comparison, which makes them even more tolerable when you see, begin to see them in their proper perspective. John Helmuth, our, our bass player up here on Sunday mornings, he made this keen observation in our community group last week. He said, uh, when things are going well, it's hard to be humble. And when things are, going, or are not going well, it, it's hard to be grateful. Uh, pretty, pretty good insight. Th this is why all the New Testament writers encourage us to be grateful in our times of suffering and hardship. I know, it's a radical idea, isn't it? But it is so valid. It's valid because we have to remember and focus on the glorious reality that our sufferings are, in fact, producing something for us, something we may not clearly see now, but will one day. Again, the writer of Hebrews says this, We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised how do you inherit what has been what has been promised how do you inherit it through faith and patience yeah another translation of the same verse says this do not let yourself become spiritually dull and indifferent instead follow the example of those who are going to inherit god's promises because of their faith and patience and the list is long of examples of people who patiently endured suffering and wound up receiving great rewards on the other side of it. The Bible is chock full of such individuals. But the point of this last verse is that we are being encouraged to remember those individuals, to, to think about them, call them to mind, let them inspire you, and follow their example. We, we need to always be filling our thoughts, our minds with, with the with stories of the resilience of courageous, faith-filled people, not just, not just in the Bible, but even contemporaries, you know, some, some of whom endured difficulties, challenges, hardships that are far more difficult than anything I will ever have to face. And yet they came out of it a better person. And that's, that's why I love reading biographies so much. Uh, uh, reading stories of what people have endured and how they persevered. It just gives me great hope and courage and inspiration. And this is what the writer of Hebrews is saying. He's saying, think about those, those who, who endured 
and overcome and, and, and through their endurance and their patience inherited the promises and then followed their example. Uh, for me, a contemporary Nick Vujicic. I mention him often here. But what a remarkable individual. A man who was born with no arms and no legs. Most people would think he would be one of the most miserable, sad, depressed people alive. Yet he is exactly opposite of that. He is full of joy and life and peace. In fact, travel, he travels the world bringing inspiration and encouragement to others who are facing hardship. But he became such a person through patiently enduring his hardship. Now, I know what, what some of you are thinking. You're thinking this, but I am not one of those people. <laughs> I, I am not one of those courageous, faithful. I'm not... Nick Vujicic. I am not Job or Joseph or David or Gideon, Daniel, Peter, Paul, or Mary. Another 60s group. Right? I, I, I'm weak. I'm not courageous. I have little faith. Uh, and hearing about people who overcame great hardships with great patience only makes me feel worse about myself because I am not that. And I hear you. And in fact, I can even relate. So in the few minutes that we have remaining, let's look at an example from Scripture that includes main characters who are maybe a little bit more where you and I are at. Uh, this story is found in John's written account of the life and teachings of Jesus, which have come to be known as the Gospel of John. Uh, Gospel of John chapter 11. I'm not... Uh, I'm just going to recount. I'm going to recount this the story verbally because we really don't have time to read the whole thing. But but you're certainly welcome to follow along if you like if you have a Bible. And I encourage you to read this uh, at home later today or later this week. But here's the situation: three of Jesus' very closest friends uh, are in a serious crisis. Uh, three siblings. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. They live in a town called Bethany. Let me tell you how close of friends they are to Jesus. A, a messenger comes to Jesus with this news. Jesus is at least a day's journey from Bethany. And a messenger comes who tells Jesus, Teacher, the one you love is deathly ill. Now, how close a friend would someone need to be in order for, you know, in order, uh, in order for them to say to Jesus, the one you love, and Jesus immediately knows who they're talking about. I mean, these people are very close friends to Jesus. Lazarus is deathly ill. Anybody here ever been deathly ill before? I don't see a single hand, but uh, I've been ill to where I wish I would die, um, but can't say that I've ever really been deathly ill. Mary and Martha send a messenger to Jesus to tell them uh, Lazarus is deathly ill. Please come immediately. But Jesus does not come, at least not immediately. He waits. He waits for two more days. Lazarus is deathly ill, and he waits two more days, but he does tell his disciples this illness will not end in death. However, the illness ends in death. 
It, Lazarus dies. Look it up. Lazarus dies. And Mary and Martha are heartbroken. And they are saying to themselves, he didn't make it. He didn't come. We called for him. He didn't come. It's too late. Jesus wasn't here. Where is Jesus? When is he going to get here? Our brother has just died. He has to be on his way, right? We sent a messenger so he knows, but he didn't make it when we had hoped. And now we just wish he'd get there just as if for nothing else to comfort us in our loss. But still no sign of Jesus. Our closest of friends. Where is he? Listen. Some of the greatest tests of patience is being patient with God's timing. Maybe today in your own life, bad things are happening. The illness is progressing. The money's running out. Evil things are unfolding all around you. Bad people are winning. Things are spinning out of control, and it all looks so hopeless. Some of the greatest tests of patience we face is having to be patient with God's timing. God rarely operates on our timetable, yet in retrospect, he is never late. His track record is perfect. God is never late, but he has no problem making us wait. Why? Because waiting builds our trust. It intensifies our dependence upon him. It forces us to our knees and makes us surrender and abandon all of our own self-reliance. It whittles us down to where we have nothing left but Jesus. And, and he seems to often like that. You know the saying, you don't know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. God seems to find it necessary to bring us to that point. These kinds of situations are the megaphone C.S. Lewis is talking about through which God shouts to us. Well, Jesus finally shows up in Bethany, but Lazarus has now been dead for four days. In fact, the funeral is in progress. It's too late. It's too late. One at a time, the sisters run out to meet Jesus as he's approaching Bethany, and one at a time, they each tell him, if you'd only been here, if you'd only been here, our brother would not have died. Jesus tells them, your brother will rise again. And they say, I know he's going to rise in the last day. Implying, but not saying out loud, but what good does that do us now? If, if you had only been here, if you'd only been here, Jesus, if you'd only, if you'd only adhered to our timeline, you could have healed our brother and he would still be with us today. Jesus tells them, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me will live, will have life, even if they die. But Mary and Martha are a lot like us. Our understanding is limited. Our faith is limited. We believe, we believe, but we need God to help our unbelief, right? Guess what? God does just that. He helps us in our unbelief. And do you know how? Through experiences just like this one. 
that require an almost supernatural kind of patience where we are suffering and in pain and in anguish and feeling hopeless because God isn't doing what we expect. He didn't show up. Uh, he didn't show up on our timeline, and it can sometimes feel like he, he, he doesn't care. But nothing could be further from the truth. John records that when Jesus saw Mary and Martha weeping inconsolably, and the friends gathered there for the funeral also weeping, and even the Pharisees officiating the memorial also weeping, John records this, the shortest verse in the Bible, and this is what it says. Jesus wept. Why did Jesus weep? He knew what he was about to do. He even told his disciples before they even left for Bethany, days earlier, he told them, our friend Lazarus is asleep, we're going to go wake him up. Of course, they were clueless as to what he was talking about, just like you and I so often are. They, they thought he meant he was literally asleep, and they said, let him, let him sleep. You know, it'll get better then. Um, so they didn't know. They, they, so Jesus had to spell it out for them, and this is what, this is what he says. Even before he left for, for Bethany, he says, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, for your sake, I am glad I was not there. Why? Why were you glad you weren't there to do something good, to, to, to save from someone from dying, to, from experiencing all this? Why were you glad? This is why. So that you may believe. God so values and treasures our belief in him the belief that creates this unshakable hope, the belief that empowers us to experience joy and incomprehensible peace, even in sickness, even in loss, even in hardships of all kinds. He treasures this belief, and he is orchestrating events just like this one, you know, where Mary and Martha and Lazarus found themselves in a, a, a serious crisis, he orchestrates so that our belief may grow. So, so if Jesus knew he was going to raise Lazarus, then why did he weep? Here's what I think. I think Jesus is so compassionate and so empathetic that he enters into our sorrow and pain even though he knows it's only for the moment. When you hurt, he hurts. When you weep, he weeps. It's like this. When I go to the movies and there's a sad part in the movie, I cry. I'm going to admit that. Yes, I cry at movies. Don't revoke my man card, but it's true. I cry at movies. Uh, and I even cry at movies, even though I've seen the movie before even though I know how the movie ends, even though I know what's next in that moment, in that one scene, you are feeling and living the drama of that moment. And I think that's what was happening here. Jesus was entering into their sadness, their loss, their pain. Jesus wept. But this whole thing had been orchestrated by God to send a powerful message. When things appear hopeless to you, there is still, in fact, hope. In fact, in God, nothing is hopeless, not even death. Jesus is about to give them a very powerful object lesson. Jesus says, where is he? Where's Lazarus? They take him to the tomb. He says, roll away the stone. Martha, still clueless as to where this is all going, says, 
but Lord, he's been in there for four days. There's going to be an awful stench. Jesus says, did I not tell you that if you believe, you would see the glory of God? As if to say to them, you said you believe, right? You said, you said that earlier. You said, you believe. And they go, yeah, but Jesus goes, then stand back. Stand back. And I would love to have seen the look on Mary and Martha's face. I would love to have seen the look on the Pharisees' faces when Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus waddles up to the opening of the tomb, still wrapped in grave clothes. God is never late. Never and when he says, this will not end in death, well, they thought it was the end, but it wasn't, was it? See, it ain't the end till God says it's the end. It's like that saying, you know, everything will be okay in the end, and if it's not okay, it's not the end. In the meantime, in the meantime, we need patience. We need to allow our patience to ripen because when it ripens, we see the glory of God. I'm going to invite the worship team back up. Dear Heavenly Father, help us to learn the lesson that Mary and Martha and Lazarus learned that day. When they thought that it was, it was hopeless, when they thought that it was too late when they thought that they had lost something very valuable. You showed them, no, you didn't lose it at all. And when you believe in the one who is the resurrection and the life, why he holds it all in his hand, and he is all-powerful, and he is all-loving, and he is working all the time to demonstrate that to us. It's just that we need to grow in our belief in you, in our trust in you, and let go of our own timelines, let go of our own methods, let go of the way we think things should go, the way we would do it, especially in the world we live in right now that seems in so many ways so out of control. You are still at work. And you are still bringing about something glorious. Help us to be patient and to let our trust and faith in you grow. In Jesus' name.